next senior researcher, Pinar Tank from the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, will talk about Turkey's geopolitical role in the MENA region. Pinar is an area studies scholar who has worked on Turkish domestic and foreign policies for the past 28 years. She is currently affiliated with PRIOS Middle East Center. Her most recent project has been a study on Turkey's turn eastward in the light of the Syrian civil war. After Pinar, research professor Pavel Baev will join us digitally from the Peace Research Institute of Oslo and will talk about Russian involvement and geopolitical interests. He has worked on Russian foreign and security policy. Since 2014, he has focused on Russia's policies towards the Middle East from security and energy perspectives, most recently on Russian intervention in Syria. He is affiliated with Prios Middle East Center and holds a non-resident fellowship at the Brookings Institute in Washington and at the Institute Francais de Relaciones Internacionales. Uh, pardon my French. Welcome, Pinar. Thank you for the invitation to speak today. Uh, my presentation today focuses on two actors that I have labeled as external to the Middle East and the impact that they have on developments. Russia is most clearly external, while I would describe Turkey as in the region, if not of the region. The purpose is to understand the drivers of Turkish and Russian policies, as well as the turbulent relationship between them. Next slide. This map illustrates Turkey's borders with key regional countries, but it's worth remembering that Turkey is not an Arab country, and in most of its modern Republican history was under strict secular rule, guarded by the Kemalist military, turning its back on the, on the Middle East and its Ottoman past in an effort to create what Turkish sociologists named a nation of forgetters. Atatürk's dictum, peace at home, peace in the world, was specifically applied to non-intervention in the region. This changed with the coming to power of the Justice and Development Party in 2002, however. Uh, for Russia, engagement in the Middle East militarily is even more recent, as my colleague Pavel Bayev will explain shortly. It wasn't until 2015 that a partnership of sorts emerged between Turkey and Russia, which gave the two key positions in the MENA conflicts. Next, please. I'd like to start with some general reflections on Turkish foreign policy towards the Middle East. This is to provide a historical context that emphasizes the overwhelming changes of the past 20 years and helps us to actually understand the present situation. My first point is the never-ending discussion of Turkey's geostrategic placement. This issue of identity is a question at the core of Turkey's foreign policy and is being discussed, especially in these days. The discussion of losing Turkey appears regularly in Western media. For example, in 2003, when Turkey refused the US the use of the Injerlik Air Force Base for its operations in the Iraq war. However, it's actually less about losing Turkey and more about the rise of new elites and a changing Turkey. The Justice and Development Party has turned eastward. And this is a second most important issue um, underlying the AKP's uh, turning eastward, which is actually that of the economy. The turn to the Middle East has built a loyal class of supporters, which are often referred to as the Anatolian Tigers, who in the AKP years have successfully developed small and medium-sized businesses with the Middle East, which has lifted them into the middle class. These are a very important part of the AKP electorate. Improvements to the economy generally have sustained the power of the AKP, 
which is why the recession in the economy at the moment and that began actually in 2018 and that's worsened after the COVID crisis is so critical to the AKP's future. So this brings us to 2011 and the Arab uprisings and the AKP ambitions of regional leadership. After the revolution in Egypt and the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood, the AKP imagined a regional leadership role through its networks with the Muslim Brotherhood. However, the coup in Egypt in 2013 and the strengthening of regional authoritarian rulers, be they in the case of Saudi Arabia Wahhabis or military in the case of Egypt, weakened Turkey's position and created a geopolitical competition in the Middle East, as my colleagues earlier have, have described, between Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt against Turkey and Qatar. As for the Muslim Brotherhood, many of them fled to Turkey and they are a thorn in the side of Turkish-Egyptian relations today. The fourth point that's relevant to understanding Turkey's present role in the region is Erdogan's engagement with the Syrian conflict and the consequent fallout of the war in Syria. Now, early on, Erdogan believed that his personal relations with Assad and the growing rapprochement between the two states would play a greater role in preventing the spiral into conflict. Unlike Russia, Turkey, which shares an 800-kilometer border with Syria, was always going to be impacted by the conflict. Turkey's Syria policy at the moment is hugely unpopular and has led to an influx of almost 4 million refugees and strained relations with the United States and the European Union. It has also led to several Turkish cross-border interventions amid international criticism, but noteworthily also very much domestic support. And these, are, these interventions have been uh, conducted to prevent a Kurdish belt from developing on the Turkish border. If you look at the map uh, on on the right-hand side there, you note that the border, that the, the areas uh, that are still controlled by the Kurdish-led SDF are around 25% of the country, and that, in fact, in these yellow areas that you see there, there lie significant oil fields. So this is a disputed area that, that, that whose final status has still not been established. Uh, a final general point is that Turkey's military adventurism has made new friends from old enemies, and this is in the case particularly Russia. Importantly, these new alliances are not based on a common history or aspirations, but on a transactional model and on leveraging power in different contexts. Next slide, please. Now, one of the difficulties in analyzing the geopolitics of Turkey's role in MENA is understanding this link to domestic politics. As Christopher Hill argues, foreign policy is primarily generated from within. This is particularly the case under a populist Islamist government. To understand Turkey's policies in the region, these are the domestic factors of key importance. While you see a clear parallel in the two bars between Turkey and Russia, there are also some very key differences. Um, of the four points that are listed, uh, in the Turkish case, the final three are variable in the short term, but the first one is likely to remain in place for the foreseeable future, something which, among other things, bodes poorly for Turkish-Kurdish reconciliation. Next slide, please. Now, if we can delve a little bit more deeply into the domestic drivers of Turkey's uh, regional geopolitics, the first is this rise of nationalism. The AKP depends on the support of a right-wing nationalist party, the MHP, which is Eurosceptic and anti-Western. Uh, 
Since 2014, the AKP has formed coalitions with Eurasianists and Turkish nationalists rather than with Turkish liberals, and its foreign policy can be seen through this lens. Furthermore, the purge of the military after the 2016 attempted coup removed many of the Atla uh, Atlanticists from the, the commanding level. Uh, Vision 2023, noted here, corresponds to the 100th year anniversary of the establishment of the Secular Republic. And this has been redefined as an AKP project created in 2011 to promote a vision of Turkey as a rising political and economic power. Of course, this is particularly challenging at the moment for Erdogan, but it will be increasingly important as 2023 also corresponds to a presidential election year. Secondly, anti the anti-Western turn has resulted in strained relations with NATO, as we saw following the decision to acquire Russian-made S-400 missiles in the summer of 2019. And relations with the EU are, if anything, even poorer due to the perceived injustices of the 2016 Migration Agreement. Turkey is instead seeking greater foreign policy autonomy and building up its military muscle, particularly its military technology and relations to regional non-state actors in order to be able to project its power in the Middle East. However, interestingly, they're not closing the door to NATO, but believe it's possible to have your cake and eat it too. So their way of looking at NATO actually is becoming much more transactional. A third factor that impacts on Turkey's foreign policy in the region is the need for victories abroad at a time when the economy has undergone a recession in 2018 and, in, and is now further dealt a heavy blow due to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, we see this impacting sectors of commerce, services, and not least tourism. Discontent with the weakened economy has also resulted in the rise of, an, of national political rivals, including previously highly profiled AKP politicians, such as former Prime Minister Ahmed Davutoglu. And these politicians are then able to court this disillusioned, disillusioned um, uh, sector of the AKP voters. Uh, the emergence of successful opposition to AKP rule in the 2019 municipal elections was the first crack in the AKP hold on power and opened up a possibility for a future uh, without Erdogan. Military adventurism, then, is a response to these domestic challenges. The rally around the flag effect has proven successful uh, by the AKP choosing topics on which there is consensus, such as the Kurdish insurgency, access to the eastern Mediterranean waters, and the rights of the Turkish Cypriot community. Among the conflicts in which Turkey has had an active role, the most important one, of course, is Syria, due to the existential threat that Kurdish autonomy represents to the Turkish state. The unpopularity of the uh, Syria policy is made worse, however, by public perception polls in which over 70% of Turks place responsibility for the Syria policy solely at the feet of Erdogan himself. Another interesting nationalist policy to look at is the Blue Home Strategy of 2020, which is an example of a nationalist doctrine which has led to a strategic shift towards claiming a naval zone in the Mediterranean between Libya and Greece. Key to these interests is the presence of large deposits of natural gas off the coast of Cyprus. In Libya, Turkey engaged early to prevent the, tall, uh, the fall of Tripoli and thus protect the maritime demarcation uh, accord it signed with the Libyan government. I think we actually should move to the next slide as well.
yes, uh, uh, in, in, with the Libyan government. Um, and uh, this, the, the effort Turkey then wanted to do was to put a stopper on the planned pipeline by the UAE, Egypt, and France. Uh, Erdogan hopes to shape a Libya that can preserve Turkey's political and economic dominance in the region and prevent Libya from coming under the sphere of influence of Egypt and the UAE. And of course, Tur Turkey has economic investments and has an eye also towards the reconstruction of Libya. Uh, so what we see in Libya were the new lines of confrontation drawn between Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the UAE, and Russia versus Turkey and Qatar. However, following this UN-brokered diplomacy in the beginning of February, the Libyan pol Political Dialogue Forum has agreed to a unified executive authority. Russia and Turkey are now presently uh, committed to the agreement, but much will depend on the withdrawal of their proxy forces. And for example, Turkey has transferred some 3,500 Syrian fighters uh, from Syria to Lib Libya as a proxy force. Uh, so there needs to be a resolution to this. However, there are also positive changes that can ensue from the Libyan process. The political process is impacting Turkey's dialogue with Egypt, and diplomatic contact, contacts were established just this week between the two. Improving relations to Egypt will also mean rethinking the relationship to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. The normalization, meanwhile, between Qatar and the Gulf states that we heard about earlier is also playing favorably into this rapprochement. In conclusion, Turkey's engagement on the region is based on profiling itself as a regional power through the office of Erdogan and in the country's relations with other powers, including Russia. Uh, Turkey uses its strategic leverage from one conflict to another to fulfill these foreign policy aims. And I think we can now move to my colleague Pavel to talk about Russia. Thank you, Pinar. Let me start saying that I am very glad to partake in this event, even in this very limited format. These are testing times for all of us, and they are for Russian policy in the Middle East. It faces a lot of challenges. It's uh, encountering a lot of uh, setbacks and problems, and I'm not sure that Foreign Minister Lavrov's visit in the Gulf area, which happens as we speak, will contribute to resolving them. And one of the key problems is just what Pinar was talking about, Iran. Iran is a very difficult ally for Russia. And it is really alive because Iran is the only country with which Russian troops are having joint combat operations in Syria. It is a brotherhood in arms and Russia is very dependent upon Iran to support its military presence in Syria, which is in fact a very limited presence. Yes, it's a big fuss around this intervention and it's certainly a first in uh, Russian history, so to say, post-Soviet history. There were Soviet interventions in the Middle East and in fact much greater in scope in both Egypt and Syria. But Iran, uh, with all the importance of having this uh, brotherhood in arms in Syria, is not really an asset for Russian policy. And it brings a lot of tensions in Russian relations with the, with the Arab states. After all, they know that 
this uh, dependency in Syria exists, that Russia is very supportive to the nuclear deal with Iran, that Russia is the only country which supports Iranian nuclear program, not directly and not only in civilian aspects by building and expanding the uh, nuclear power station, but nevertheless, these are kind of material facts and the Russians and the Arab states are very suspicious of Russia's real intentions regarding Iran. And uh, Russia's relations with Iran and Turkey, while uh, organized in the triangular Astana format, are in fact very asymmetric. It's, it's very different content and very different intensity in Russia's relations with Turkey than it is with Iran. But probably one observation before that is that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia has moved, so to say, further away from the Middle East. There are no more common borders with Iran or Turkey. Russia is not anymore a, uh, a regional power, so to say. It doesn't have an interface with the, with the Middle East. And it, it matters. Turkey and Iran cannot go away uh, from Syria. And Russia, in principle, can. And every regional actor knows that. Next slide, please. What prompted Russian intervention in Syria, what prompted Russian uh, activism in the Middle East was certainly the Arab Spring, which happened exactly 10 years ago, which was a very controversial and loaded event, interpreted in many different ways. Um, but for, for Putin, it was immediately a reflection on the events of 89, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, of the revolutions in Eastern Europe, which he experienced firsthand, so to say, while not exactly in Berlin, but only in Dresden, but he saw these crowds chanting Wir sind ein Volk, and that uh, trauma, so to say, stays with him uh, until now. And it's aggravated because as every dictator, he is afraid, really afraid, of the unpredictable and sudden explosion of uh, street energy, so to say, of uh, leaderless but nevertheless irresistible crowds filling the streets. This is for him um, is a threat. And he thought to counter that threat, uh, choosing Syria in, uh, in the year 15 as the kind of main theater, as the place where this wave of revolutions can be turned back. So the intervention in Syria, yes, there were many other determinants in that, uh, but what I want to emphasize is that there is a huge difference in, uh, between Russia and Turkey in this regard. For Erdogan, the Arab Spring, as Pinar probably has explained and can explain more, was an entirely different phenomenon with a lot of hope, with the kind of point or not the one of Islamic revival, yes, but also something which may grant him leadership in the um, Arab world. And that vision, again, st still stays with him. Very different perceptions between Russia and Turkey in this regard. Next slide, please. And Erdogan, in fact, had an Arabic dream of a victorious revolution in Syria, which would let him come to the Umayyad Mosque and pray there. Well, it didn't happen. Instead, Putin paid a visit to the mosque and, uh, well, 
he didn't really pray there, but at least satisfied his curiosity. Uh, and it was a point where he felt it's possible to uh, declare victory in this crusade against revolutions, in his leadership, in the counter-revolutionary stance, so to say. Well, the victory isn't quite complete, because again, in Syria is in very poor shape, and until the war is really over, and until the last rebel-held province of Idlib is conquered, uh, it's not really a victory. It's all like a very shaky pause, which might suddenly turn in a different direction, because Syria is in incredibly poor shape. And Russia isn't able to deliver investment and aid and help uh, Iran, pretended uh, to be capable of doing that, but with this uh, situation Iran now, Iran now is, it's again, not, not feasible. So Syria remains in this incredibly uh, devastated um, uh, state and cannot really be uh, rebuilt in any meaningful way. Next slide, please. And in fact, Russia has never been really interested in rebuilding Syria in um, making sure that kind of, the al-Assad regime would really continue to rule it. The big game for Russia in the Middle East is to become a force with which United States would have to reckon. Uh, it's kind of big geopolitical designs are always about United States. And on this slide, you can see the Russian patrol entering uh, the position that U.S. forces formerly occupied uh, in northern Syria. That was presented as really a moment of triumph, while it is, in fact, a pretty insignificant episode. And every time there is uh, a U.S. Uh, strike in Syria, like very recently with Biden's patient. That is a big deal, certainly, for Russia. Israeli strikes happen now and again. And, well, there are some protestations, sometimes uh, nothing serious. But, you, but the game with the U.S. is really what Russia is seeking to play in the Middle East. And the U.S. pivot away from this region towards Asia-Pacific is something Russia isn't entirely happy with. Yes, Russia is demanding U.S. withdrawal from Syria, but at the same time, it really wants um, this inter interplay to continue. This deconflicting, going into some other kind of talks and negotiations, Russia doesn't really want to have all these quarrels and rows with Turkey in, the, uh, in various hotspots in the Middle East, even if it succeeded in managing them reasonably well. Its big idea is always about the United States. Next slide, please. And what about the oil, which is supposed to be kind of the main content of many conflicts and interactions in the Middle East? And Russia is in the position where it doesn't really need this oil. And if there is a kind of crisis affecting the oil supply from the Middle East, Russia tends to benefit from it, much the same way the Soviet Union benefited from uh, oil spasm of 73 and 79. But, but that's kind of a, a big proposition. Uh, what is uh, happening really is the kind of oil diplomacy and kind of Putin and his uh, oil ministers are very keen at uh, kind of hammering new and new deals with Saudi Arabia and with and the OPEC plus format. 
seeking to make sure that the oil price would not go down too far. It is a crucial parameter for Russia. But still, with all this diplomacy, with all these kind of talks, and with all these oil quarters, the trend is clear. The kind of oil as a key uh, fuel, key energy source is declining. Uh, and Russia really has a lot of difficulties acknowledging that. And the past year, which was again certainly the year of incredible uh, spasms and uh, crisis caused by the pandemic, was for Russia a year of kind of reckoning with that, that the resources available for all sorts of things, domestic and external, are shrinking. And there is a very visible increase of kind of caution and self-restraint in the Russian foreign policy, including in the Middle East. Uh, Russia kind of needs really to score the maximum possible with them from the minimum possible investments. It's not very keen to expand its exposure uh, in Libya with the mercenaries which are kind of deniable conveniently and in many ways paid for by the United Arab Emirates. It's not very keen to invest in Syria. Its capacity for launching new interventions is barely existent. Uh, it is remarkable in this way that despite all the setbacks uh, of, from last year, Russia continues on this track of caution, while Turkey in its uh, Middle East and its foreign policy in general, to the contrary, has become much more activist, much more uh, assertive, and Russia is uh, encountering this activism in the South Caucasus quite unexpectedly and barely able to contain Turkish ambitions there. Uh, this uh, doesn't really bother well for Russian-Turkish relations in the near future. I don't really see anything resembling an alliance coming uh, about. What I probably can see is kind of the quarrels between Russia and Turkey escalate and I don't really want to see another sharp crisis in these relations, but I am afraid it's in the cards. That's my 10 minutes. Thank you very much. And just to conclude on a few points here, as Pavel uh, mentioned in his talk, uh, there is likely to be friction coming uh, between Russia and Turkey because of their d different approaches to the region. However, there are also aspects of their relationship, like I mentioned earlier, that are very transactional, and there is an understanding between the two of them. And much of this understanding is, uh, is based on their view of state security as being more important than human security. Some of this understanding is based, if you look Look at those two pictures at the amount of time they've worked to one another with one another and an understanding of one another's personalities they they understand power in the same ways that being said of course there are several arenas in which they've engaged and have come very close uh, to conflict and uh, the future at the moment is 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 left open thank you mm -hmm.